My name is Catherine, as you probably know already. Uh, he just said that. Um, I'm starting my senior year at Franklin in a couple of weeks. Not yet, not yet. And uh, I serve with Mosaic Kids in the early childhood when I can, when I can, yeah. A busy person. Um, today I'm going to be reading Luke 9 through 18. Oh, 9, 18 through 27. Excuse me, excuse me. Um, after I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond. Thanks be to God. I think you know this one by now. Okay. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do, you, who do the crowd say I am? Excuse me. Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the God of the Father and the holy angels. Today I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for leading us. That was, that was powerful. That was great. Um, we're going to take some time and look to scripture, and then we're going to get back to singing, because that just sounds really good. Um, it's really good to be with you. My name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we have uh, take time every time we gather to open up scripture. We believe that God speaks to it to us through it, and that it is God's inspired word, and that we actually are changed when we listen and receive it. And so uh, we have been working our way through one book of the Bible, the book of Luke, uh, for some time now, and we're going to pick that up and continue on. Uh, and so we're in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 9, and we're going to pick up with verse 18. Catherine, where are you at? Up there. Awesome job. That was fantastic. Yes. Thank you very much. Great job reading. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a, a little bit of an old man, but uh, you're going into high school as a senior, and uh, I've got two that have um, graduated from high school, and so it's just uh, an answer to prayer and a sign of God's work in our midst, in our church, in our city, uh, that a teenager, young woman would be following Jesus uh, like you are in our city, and so um, that's just, a, it's a gift to be able to see, so thanks for reading and doing so well and leading us in that. Uh, we're going to do this. I'm going to pray, and then, uh, then we're going to dive in together. So uh, would you pray with me? God, you have this uniqueness about you that, is, that your name is power in and of itself. And um, that's true 
for very, very few others, and that is true uh, for no one like you, that a name would carry the kind of power. And so when we say your name and when we sing your name and when we read your name and when we hear your name, you work through even that. And so uh, it is uh, our joy and our gift to be able to, to sing to you in this place. And you have this mysterious promise that I don't fully understand where you say that you delight in us and you delight in us when we sing to you and of you. And so you're delighting in what's going on here this morning and that is humbling and amazing and uh, we desire to bring you uh, delight and joy and honor and worth because of who you are. And God, so in this place we declare you uh, as one of a kind, as all powerful, as good, loving, just, and merciful. And we need all of those things in who you are uh, every day of our lives. And Holy Spirit, you are here and active and at work. And so would you continue what you've already begun uh, today? And would you have freedom to work and to move and to heal and to comfort and to change and convict and to challenge and all of the things that you are promising to do in our midst? And so would you have freedom to do that here? Uh, and would we experience you in that way? And Jesus, we just sang about you as king, and so we declare you as king, and that you are a king of a kingdom that is unlike any other, uh, that will heal all. And so we await that day, and now we acknowledge you as a king that is unlike any other, that you serve and sacrifice uh, before bringing power, and you are all-powerful. And so we want more of you in this time, and we want more of you as we hear from your word this morning. Would you guide us and teach us and lead us? We want to hear from you. We need to. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to do uh, two things in the next few little time here. Um, one, I want to share a connection uh, between Peter Pan and the Golan Heights. And then I want to tell you about my favorite book from this past year. Actually, from last year, from 2021. So Peter Pan and the Golan Heights. Um, some of you are like, oh yeah, I know about that. So just listen in if you already know that. If you don't, um, I think this is pretty fascinating. Peter Pan, um, some of us know about him. He was introduced as a fictional character in literature a little 120 years ago, uh, 1902, 1904, right around there. And uh, then of course, many more of us know because he is a, uh, the, the movie that Disney did in 1953. Peter Pan is this shorter, young guy uh, who lives in, in Neverland and uh, um, he actually originally could, could fly a little bit, you know, I don't know if you know about that, but he's, he's got these little wings, he's got that ability, and uh, he never grows up. So he's a boy who never grows up, and because of that, uh, he has all sorts of kind of fun adventures and is fascinating, and he has become, as we know, uh, to some degree or another, he's come kind of this cultural icon of uh, innocence and uh, escapism and fun and adventure and mischief and all of those uh, kinds of things. And so there's a lot in Peter Pan that, uh, you know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or I'm not going to share anything personally but you might aspire to. I wish I was kind of like Peter Pan, or I, I appreciate that about Peter Pan. I like that about Peter Pan. Um, I, um, I got to, my sister and I uh, went to a, a, uh, a musical uh, when we were in elementary school that my, my parents took us to, uh, and it was of Peter Pan. And I'm looking through the, the program before it starts, and the uh, lead character, Peter Pan, is played by a woman. And I, I was confused and went on, and she had been a gymnast before she was in theater and music and could do all of the things that Peter Pan needed to do. And I just learned this week, um, as I've been doing my study, you might not have, I do this kind of thing, on Peter Pan, 
is he's often played and portrayed by women uh, because of their smaller stature and they're able to do Peter Pan type things for whatever that's worth. So Peter Pan has a connection to the Golan Heights and some of you might be going, what is the Golan Heights? I've heard of that before, I have no idea where it is. The Golan Heights is northeast Israel, uh, overlaps into Syria. It's disputed land that, that many people have lost their lives over and it's gone back and forth over the years. The Golan Heights, northeast Israel. In the Golan Heights is this beautiful scene there's this beautiful mountain called Mount Hebron. And Mount Hebron is, uh, some years it's covered by snow year round, not every year, sometimes it all gets melted, but it's this beautiful mountain that's the highest point in northern Israel. And it's in the Golan Heights. And on the foothills of Mount Hebron is this cave right at this town. And the cave uh, has inside of it this deep, deep pool of water that originally many people thought that it, it, it had no end, that it just went on forever. But it was this mysterious and wonderful deep pool that then started the, 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 the beginnings of what becomes the Jordan River. And in the process coming out of that deep pool in that cave at the foot of, of Mount Hebron, before it gets to the Jordan River is this just majestic scene of rolling waterfalls and beauty and lush scenery and it's one of the most beautiful spots in all of the Mediterranean and all of Israel for sure. A town popped up right there around that cave and around that beautiful scene. People still visit it today. And that town is Benias. And Benias is uh, this place that started because of that well of water in the cave and because of the beautiful scene. Because it was so fertile in that place, they decided to, to mark that territory by uh, building a shrine and then eventually a temple and a whole place to do sacrifices to a mythical god. They had a mythical god that, that the Greeks had, had developed and Greeks had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of, of gods and stories that Greeks had. And so a mythical god, was, they had built a shrine for that god in that place. And this god was kind of interesting. He was on, uh, from the waist down, he was a goat. And from the waist up, he was a man. And if you're uh, you know, a Greek God creator, you get to create the God how you want. And so that's what they did. And he had horns like a goat, but a, a body up was a, was a man. And so uh, this God would uh, uh, kind of do whatever he wanted. And one of the things he did is want to fulfill any pleasure that he had. And one of those was uh, just, as you can imagine, around the ideas of sex. And so he would chase these lesser goddesses named nymphs. Nymphs are a, kind of a lesser female god. And he would chase them around. And the story goes that one time he was chasing one and it ran into the water and hid. And what nymphs, nymphs can do that you may or may not know is they can shapeshift. They can just turn into whatever they want. And so in order to hide, disguise herself, she turned into a reed by the side of the river. And this god, half goat, half man chasing her, um, found that she had disappeared. And so out of his disappointment, he grabbed one reed, not her, but just one reed, and turned it into a pipe and started playing music on it like a flute, which Peter Pan does. This god's name is Pan, where Peter got his last name. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Benias, originally named Panias, but in Arabic, there's no P, and so it turned into B, Benias, had two other names as a city. And one of those names was uh, named after Caesar, because Caesar came in and conquered everything, Roman Empire, and then handed that town to Herod when Herod became the ruler of that province. And Herod named the town after Caesar, 
And then after a little while, Herod gave it to his son, whose name was Philip. And Philip named the town after himself. And so the town became known as Caesarea Philippi. And it was under Roman control. The other name, I don't remember, but it was before Panias and before Caesarea Philippi, but it was the very location that when Israel split into two kingdoms after Solomon, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern part of, the, of Israel. And this location with that cave, with that deep water, was the first place that Jeroboam led the northern half of the nation, which was Israel, where he led them into idolatry and to follow other gods other than God. Panias was a Greek myth mythical god, Pan, was named after him. Caesarea Philippi was named after Roman power and Herod's rule that went down to his son. And whatever the third name was, where Jeroboam turned from following God, from following Yahweh, to leading his people to follow idols and put their faith in something else. All three of those scenes would have been very familiar to the disciples when Jesus walks them to that location and says, I've got a really important question for you. I've got a question that you need to answer. And he asks them this question, and then he further clarifies, and then he gives them information that changes the course of their entire lives. And so in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we have this question that Jesus asks in that scene where all of that history is present and the disciples are familiar with all of that. And he says this, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, and here's the question, who do the crowds say that I am? Who does everybody else say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. That was the rumors going around. That's who the crowd said that they, they thought Jesus was. Jesus was this rabbi that was getting a following, and he was teaching with authority and power. He was casting out demons, and he was doing these amazing supernatural works where people who had never walked could walk and never seen could see, who died came back to life. That Jesus was unique and powerful and was doing these things, and so he's getting a following and some attention. And Jesus says, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. And you have, to, you have to know that they're saying it with like a shrug of their shoulders, like, yeah, we know he lost his head, he got beheaded, but some people think that you're him. And some people think that you're Elijah and past and had an influence on the nation. And, and then other people say that you're another prophet, because we've got these people, these men who have come, particularly some women, but mostly men, who have come over the course of our history, who have helped us as a nation flourish. And so people are hoping you're to that level as one of them. And Jesus then asked the really important question, which is he was after all along. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Which is a question that each one of us has to ask and answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Jesus is asking us that question. Who do you say that I am? I know that's your answer for everybody else. And Peter provides an answer. And if you don't know Peter, Peter's the one that often goes first, whether that's for his good or for doesn't go well for him, whether he's answering this correctly or if he's just saying the first thing that comes to his mind or if he fully understands or not. But he said, Peter's the first to answer. And he says, God's Messiah. And some of you might know exactly what that term means and others you're like, oh, that's a kind of a Bible term. I've heard it before. I'm not quite sure what it means. Messiah was this term, this title that was set aside for somebody that was promised to come. Not another prophet, not Elijah come back from the dead, not John the Baptist who had had a good little but short run, but somebody distinct and different and unique. 
that God's promised one, the anointed one, Christ the Lord, this title that says you're the Messiah, and all throughout all of that is the deliverer. That over and over, we as a people, as a nation, they would have said, we've fallen on our faces, we've turned to other gods, we've sinned, we've suffered, we've flourished at times, but then we go back to suffering and unfaithfulness to God. But all along, we know that God is promising one that's gonna come and deliver us. And so right now, as we live at this moment in time, they would have said and thought, with Roman occupation over us, with the influence of Greek mythology and beliefs penetrating all of culture, with our history of knowing of being unfaithful to God, with all of that in front of us, we can't wait for the Messiah, and we really hope that you're him. And not only that, but we really hope that you can deliver and that you follow through. And so what Jesus does is, I mean, what Peter does in answering Jesus' question is Peter gives kind of the, the point A. There's point A and then there's point B, which is a fuller, but fuller understanding. But, but point B, he starts it and he says, God's Messiah. And Jesus' response is essentially, that, that's correct, but let's go to point B and, and go a little bit deeper. And so Jesus says, you've got this right. I am God's Messiah. But I want to tell you, not everybody else, but I want to tell you a little bit more. So here's what he does. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So he wants it to keep it secret for now. Jesus is going to tell more when he's ready. But he says to his disciples, don't tell anyone else right now. And he said, the son of man, he's referring to himself, the son of man, God's Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Not all of us, but, but many of us are familiar with that storyline. Um, it's, the, it's the good news, it's the gospel. We, we know who Jesus is. If you don't, this, this comes to happen. Jesus, in this sense, is a prophet in this moment that he's foretelling what will happen. That he's, he's gonna suffer, he's gonna be rejected, and there's one thing when you say, like, I was rejected, and you kind of, you know what that, we've all been rejected in some way, um, given bad news, disappointed, told no when we were hoping to hear yes. We know what it feels like to be rejected. Jesus goes into detail, and he says, by specifically these people, um, which he lists them out, elders and, and what, Pharisees and, and teachers of the law, uh, however he phrases it there, but he, he's a chief priest and teachers of the law. But he's basically, he's, he's taking note to say, all the important people are going to reject me. Everyone who's got weight and authority and influence, they're all going to reject me. I'm going to be rejected by all the important people. The rest kind of don't matter as much. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. And, and then the really good news, I'm going to be raised to life. And he puts this word in there and he says, this must happen. It cannot go another way. It will and it must go in this direction. This is part B. Jesus is asking them, who do the crowd say that I am, but who do you say I am? You know who I am. I'm God's Messiah. And this is what it means to be God's Messiah. Yes, there's going to be deliverance, but it's not going to look in the way that, that you think. And yes, I'm going to work, but I'm going to suffer and be killed. This is not great news to the disciples. And in fact, I wonder if a few of them in that setting kind of brought their eyes up and looked around and were like, is there any other options around? Is there someone else to follow? Is there something else to believe in? Is there some other way I could go? And Jesus stops right at, at this point and he says, this is my path that I'm going and I must go this way. This is what it means to be me. 
I'm fully God and fully human, and I'm going to lay down my life. I want to tell you about my favorite book from last year. I, uh, um, I really enjoyed re reading, um, which I didn't as a student. Um, I wish I had. Uh, it kind of came later. Um, and uh, this is, of the books that I read last year, this is, this is my favorite book. And by favorite, um, I don't mean like, oh, it was at the top of the list. I was like, the second place, I can't even remember what the second place book was. So far ahead of everything else. And like, when I say favorite, just translate to, you should go out and buy this and read it tonight. Like that kind of favorite. Like, like take out your phone right now and order it on Amazon. Like that's what I mean by favorite. I won't be offended. Take it out. Go ahead. Don't look at anything else. Just look at Amazon or wherever you want to buy a book. If you feel better about buying a book somewhere else, Thrift Books is a great app. But the, awesome book. The name of the book is this. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I get that most all of you are like, I'm done. I'm out. Okay. Just go with me on this, okay? The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's written by a guy named Carl Truman. Here's the subtitle to the book that you... Oh, you can all read that. That's great. Um, cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and Sexual Revolution. Okay, I got some of you back with Sexual Revolution, so now you're interested again. That's great. So this, what this book does is it's, it's this philosophical, sociological, and historical look on where we got to today in terms of the modern self. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Well, buy the book, read the book. So um, the modern self is the way that, in, and this is not the whole world over, this is us in our, our kind of nation, our kind of culture, Western culture, if you'll go with me on that, but the way that we view reality and that we view ourselves. okay? Hang with me. This book is over 400 pages long, uh, and uh, many of you won't, won't buy it or read it, which is really good. It was such a good book that a bunch of this guy's friends said, you've got to read, you've got to write a version that people will actually read. You're welcome. In two, so in 2020, he wrote that. I read it in 21. Um, earlier this year, he came out with a paperback version that's much, much shorter. It's 180 pages. We can all do this. Great, we're in. Okay. Um, if you bought the other one already, stick with it. It's better. <laughs> Here's a shorter version. Strange New World. Okay? Same guy wrote it. Here's the subtitle of this one. How thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution. You get sexual revolution with both. You're in. So this is 180 pages. We all can read this. It's so important. Here's what it does. Is it, it helps put words to the world that we live in as we live in the Pacific Northwest, as we live in the US of A, as we live in a westernized culture. It helps us understand it. This guy's a follower of Jesus and it's great. He says, I'm not writing a lament or a polemic. I'm not writing because I'm so sad and I'm also not writing to defend it. I'm just explaining what is. That's what I'm doing. It's so helpful to understand how we got to where we are. Many of us might not even know where we are. So I want to use some of his words to say this is where we are that puts understanding to, um, to the world and the culture in which we live in. So here we go. Now, thank you for listening to all that. If I can just ask you to give me four minutes to read a few sentences from this book, knowing that I am fully aware that today is August 21st, that we are in the dead and end of summer, and we just want to relax, and we're thinking about beach day. I, I get that. 
Give me four minutes, that's all I ask. This is super important. All right, Carl writes this. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. Keywords, authority, authenticity, inner feelings. That, that what, what holds authority in, in, in our lives is our inner feelings. And to be authentic, we need to be able to express those wherever we are in, in social settings with others. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. We know that, we see that all over the place. Such a self is defined by what is called expressive individualism. Word for the day, write that down, take it with you. Expressive individualism, that's just a term that describes this cultural setting that we're in. We're doing great. That took me like 15 seconds, I'm sure. The term expressive individualism was coined by the American scholar Robert Bella. Wrote Habits of the Heart, I think in the 80s. Um, significant book on society and, and philosophy and that kind of thing, who defines it as follows. Here you go. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition. Yes, believe that. He goes on. That should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. We're doing great. We're tracking so well. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. If I'm to be who I really am, my internal feelings and intuition has to be expressed. That is expressive individualism. That is what, mo that's the default, that's the assumption that most people wake up with in the morning in Portland and Vancouver in the Pacific Northwest in our country. Uh, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. He wrote a really significant book 15 years ago called um, Secular Age. He's, he's Catholic, but he's, he's a philosopher and well-respected, one of the most influential books in philosophy over the last 15, 20 years. He defines the culture of authenticity as this, is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own. Yes, true, sure, that's important. We each have our own humanity. It's important that we find and live out who I am. As against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generations or religious or political authority. This is our city's default. This, this sounds familiar. This sounds like our, the water we swim in. This sounds like our assumptions. This sounds like our culture. As against surrendering to conformity. None of us want to conform to anything. We, we want to push off anything that tells us how and who to be. With a model imposed us from outside by society, the previous generations, religious or political authority. If it's helpful, uh, we throw around the word culture a lot. When we look at the, at the things that are valued, celebrated, affirmed, and rewarded around us, that's culture. And so when we look around us, this is what's celebrated, valued, affirmed, and rewarded. That I have who I am, my own humanity, 
my inner feelings and intuition. There is so much of expressive individualism that is true to what it means to be human, that is important to how God created us and who we are, that is valuable to, to guard and protect. And then I believe it falls off a steep cliff after that, and it just gets all sorts of twisted up. This says, and why I think these two books are so important, is it explains how we got here. And where we are is we live in a society, in a city, where who I am in my internal becomes those keywords authority and authentic. I have to be authentic. I have to be who I am because that's the authority. And if I cannot be who I am, meaning who I feel I am at this moment, then something else has authority over me, and that is not good. Those are beliefs and convictions that are hardwired into us as people who live in the Pacific Northwest in our nation in a Western culture. I want to read for you a different kind of way of thinking because this is a pathway. This is a way of thinking and being and relating to self and one another. And it actually, what it is, is it's a way of saying this is the path to the good life. This is how to be who you really are. And there's no restraints and anything that is external should not be placed on you. And we know one of the critical battles right now for this is something external, even like something you didn't sign up for, even like something you didn't ask for, even like something your physical body. That's even external to what's internal here, and that is the authority. And I will be authentic because I will be what my authority says that I am. And again, we have to also say in that moment how I'm feeling today. That is the world we live in, and that is the way of the good life in our culture. That is the promise. A good life, another way of saying the good life is the good way or the good news or the gospel. This is the gospel of our city. There's another gospel. Listen to these words. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, there's that word must again. Without it, this isn't who I am. This is who I'm created to be. If I go another direction, this is not what I was destined for and designed for. Must deny themselves, take up their cross, daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And just to be clear, each and every single one of us fit into that phrase. Anyone who wants to save your life will lose it. So our starting position, where we find ourselves, is on a path to a lost life. That's our starting place comma, but whoever loses their life for me, Jesus says, will save it or find it or experience life. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Jesus 
has an utterly different pathway. Jesus has a different way to the good life. Jesus has good news. Jesus has a gospel that is absolutely opposed to the gospel of our age. It's the opposite. It goes in the other direction, and it must. It's defined that way. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the authority you should long for. I'm the authority you should feel safe and willing to lose your life to. Because when I have it and when I hold it and when you're with me and pursuing me, you'll save it. It'll be what it was designed for. Jesus is saying, I crafted you, I created you, I made you, I know your fingerprint. It doesn't take me very long to count all the hairs on your head, regardless of how much hair on your head you have. I know you. I actually know you better than you know yourself in that moment, in that feeling. Expressive individualism, the flavor and the culture and the, the oxygen of our age has some truth mixed into it. Don't, don't mishear me. Understanding what's going on inside. I'd, I've been to a counselor three different times over the course of my life. In each time, God used it significantly to redirect my life. And the counselor that I see now that I've been seeing for four years has been a gift. Being able to understand, and my wife would tell you this, Abby would tell you, we might not have made it to 25 years of marriage if I hadn't learned what was going on inside of me. And at the very same time that I was learning what was going on inside of me, to surrender to authority that created and make me and is far better than me, and learn how to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus daily leads to life rather than oppression. And so Jesus stands not within the good news of today, not morphed into it and compromised with it, but fully separately set apart in such a way that he would paint a picture for his first disciples and say, imagine when the Romans come to your town and say, you today are being crucified. And before they hang you on a cross, they hang a cross on you and they put the beam on your back and you have to walk up to the hill which Jesus fully knew he was going to be doing. He said, that's what it's like, that you have started on a path that there's no deviation from. You have a cross beam on your shoulders. Your life will soon be over. It's that kind of must that you are destined for me and committed to me and there's no turning aside that your path is set. That's what it means to be a disciple. And he takes us and he invites us with all of our flaws and with all of our failures and he says, yep, we're going to keep going in this direction. And the disciples in that moment sitting there and looking at all the other options around them. And our option in front of us is Peter Pan, isn't it? I don't ever want to grow up. I want to escape any pain that's going on right now. I want to have the choice to change my life tomorrow and the next day. Never. I want to be in Neverland. And those disciples were looking at saying, Pan, pursuing all kind of carnal pleasures and pursuits and fertility and beauty, and there's good things mixed in there, but when it becomes the thing, it's derailing and destroying. And power in this world like Romans held, he said, no, it's not that, we're not grasping for that. And we're not going back in our past to when our people left Yahweh and pursued idols that were made by man's own hand. How foolish is that? But deny yourself, 
which is surrender, the very thing our culture hates to do and resists doing. But surrender and take up your cross, set your course, and come be with me. Come walk with me. I want to read a few verses from Psalm 42. You can close your eyes and listen. They'll be on the screen. These are written by the sons of Korah. And they wrote them when they were discouraged and frustrated, frustrated, and they were hoping beyond hope because all around them pushed in on them. And it's believed that these words were written near Caesarea Philippi and had the image of the waterfalls there and the beginning of the Jordan River in that very place. And I want to read these few verses to you because I think they put words to where some of us are today. And I want us to hear these words and then I want us to walk to the sides and, and take communion. Communion that we could not see and taste if Jesus himself had not suffered and been rejected, killed, and then resurrected again. Because he walked that path, we can walk to the side of the room today and we can take up a little cup of juice, reminded of Christ's blood shed for us and take up a little cracker his body broken for us. And there's something that is wonderfully physical and communal about this. And so if you came with somebody, I invite you to go with them to these tables. And if you came on your own, you can stand with others. You can go on your own. You can take it back to your seat. You can pull off to the side of the prey. But this is the time that we come and we say, Jesus, I'm your disciple. I want to deny myself. Help me to be able to do that. I want to have to take up my cross, not in a sense of suffering, though that will include it for some of us, but I want to take up my cross in terms of I've committed fully to this and there's no turning away. I want to follow you. And so as we go to communion, listen to these words. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when can I go and meet with God? My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And God, we praise you today as we come to these tables, as we sing of who you are. Will you encourage us? Will you strengthen us? Will you give us a vision of what it means to be your disciple in this world today?